Malcolm Honline will join us in a moment. I do remind you that uh, Malcolm Honline will be spending Pesach in Puerto Vallarta, your opportunity to um, spend Pesach with him and hear, hear more about what's going on in this crazy world of ours and even ask him questions directly about what's happening in this crazy world of ours. Just don't bother him at the Seder, please. Uh, go to PesachInVallarta.com, PesachInVallarta.com, or 786-290-5919. Again, that's 786-290-5919 for Pesach in Vallarta. Check out JewishWorldview.com for a whole bunch of great articles to print out before Shabbos about what's happening in Israel and the Jewish world. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations, joins us on a Shushan Purim morning here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Yeah, good morning. It's not shining, but it's the, it is beautiful, and I had a beautiful Chag, and I hope everyone else did as well. Well, you do sound like it's the day after Purim, to be very honest with you. It gets better in a few minutes. <laughs> I don't drink enough to, you got, you to gotta, have the excuse. you got to warm up, and all of a sudden you'll sound great. Um, yeah, I, I wish I felt a drop better, but we're going to make it through this conversation. By the way, and you know, obviously, and anybody whose phone basically blew up with messages at about 1 p.m. yesterday, 1 p.m. Eastern time yesterday knows, there's a lot of big news to discuss, but I can't start this morning without having you comment on the fact that when one reads the Megillah, and everybody in this audience, uh, basically everyone in this audience, you know, had read it or heard it twice in the last uh, a couple of days. Um, and it, you read the Megillah, it is hard not to associate so many things that happened in that era with what's going on currently today. Did you get that feeling as you read it now in, uh, in 2019? Every word, literally, is relevant to today. In fact, there are many svarim that bring down that if you read the Megillah just about something that occurred more than 2,000 years ago and don't understand its contemporary significance, then you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah of reading the Megillah. And the messages and the lessons that we have to learn from it, from the behavior, from the... And, and you really have to be very careful because, you know, to, to see the construction of the words... There's so many important messages for our contemporary time, and I hope uh, if you didn't pay attention to it then that you do it now. Just take the time to sit and read it, and a lot of the books that have been written about the political messages of the Megillah. And and just one, again, I know there's a lot of news to get to, but just one, um, the way Jewish leadership behaves when they are in a country in the diaspora and they are enjoying some type of political influence. You would say that's certainly a theme we could take away from the story, right? And what responsibilities it places on them, the courage you have to have that, you know, to overcome the natural resistance like Esther did, or to be able to have the courage and to, to report what Mordechai, as Mordechai did, and to, to think about all of the lessons that uh, come about for Jewish leadership, but also for what the responsibility of people and the importance, ultimate importance of Jewish unity, yep. which made us vulnerable to Haman in Haman's eyes, and Esther recognized it and gathered all of the Jews to be the antidote. And and last thing, because so many people have pointed this out so often in the last few years, we don't. And you've said this, I believe. I'm paraphrasing. We're not as concerned with Jewish unity during bad times. It seems during difficult times. We find the ability to get together, but in times of prosperity, 
that's when the fighting begins and expands, and uh, and that's where things can get really dangerous. It's regrettable if if it takes negative events to unify us, and that we don't recognize how much we have in common. We always focus on our differences, and that's uh, a lesson we also learn that we have to do it at all times to understand that what we have in common far outweighs our differences. We are live on a Shushan Purim morning. I say that because you're going to hear Malcolm's comments about yesterday's big uh, news out of Washington uh, as of now, as of a few minutes before 8 a.m. Eastern time on this Friday morning, Shushan Purim. Uh, The President of the United States of America tweeted the following at 12.50 Eastern time yesterday. He said, after 52 years, it is time for the United States to fully recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which is of critical, strategic, strategic and security importance to the state of Israel and regional stability. Malcolm, take us through this uh, process that uh, eventually got on Purim Day the President of the United States to make this announcement. I know that the, uh, that the Pompeo visit is being credited with some of this. I know that there's been rumors about it, and cynically... There are those who believe there, that this might be a March surprise, the president tossing a bone to the prime minister in advance of the Israeli elections. What can you tell us about the background of yesterday's announcement by Twitter, on Twitter, rather? Well, everybody knows how Israel came in, I hope, into the Golan Heights as a result of the Six-Day War. And till that point, Syria uh, was bombarding Israel from the heights. It's a, it gives them a strategic advantage. And think if they could put missile launchers uh, there, they wouldn't have to build tunnels to get the equipment up there to challenge both the Jewish presence, but more importantly, to be able to fire against uh, all the Israeli cities uh, and to to rain havoc and to in, bring in terrorists. Uh, what Iran would do were that area to be vacated. So there's nobody who rationally believes that Israel should give up this territory. People are saying, I hear on the news, yet, in fact, the United Nations voted this year that Israel should withdraw from the territory. Just think if, if, if the Iranians and the militias and Hezbollah and others had been allowed to, to be there and be in position there. So it's an irrational thing to think about Israel withdrawing unless there's some miraculous development. Um, and and even those who oppose it recognize that until there's a, a qualitative change, as the British put it, in terms of the government and and the um, uh, uh, in Syria, that one couldn't contemplate it. The French embassy issued a statement to that effect, that the, uh, the, the it's essentially saying that Israel is, should not be forced to to make any concession or, or make any move there under these circumstances. So this has been an issue that Prime Minister Netanyahu in particular has pressed, but so have others in in, in Israel. There have been pushes for annexation uh, or extension of Israeli law. Uh, uh, unlike what most, including me, thought, they, Israel did not annex the Golan, and the um, but they it is under Israeli control, as the State Department said last week, which was already a major shift. Because until then, every document said it was Israeli-occupied territory. Then it said Israeli-controlled territory. And that may seem like a, just a, a semantic difference, but in fact, it is a, a different status. And then uh, the president uh, tweeted out, and he used the word sovereignty, Israeli sovereignty, right. over the Golan. 
Uh, obviously, this is evoking a very negative reaction in the Arab world, and in the, uh, others are being critical of it. A lot of people here in the States um, and are raising the issue. Was this simply a gift to Netanyahu before his election, given how he has raised it? And he raised it publicly during his meetings, uh, during a press conference at the time of his meetings with uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. Yeah, well, well, some can, cause some can uh, uh, surmise that it was well choreographed. We also raised it with Senator Lindsey Graham, if you remember, and he right. took he went up there with him to show him the topography. And anybody who sees it can't help but be impressed and understand and what Israel has had to do to fight the attacks coming underground through these tunnels. And UNIFIL, the United Nations interim force in in Lebanon, acknowledged this week that there were that they uh, the, of the existence of six of the tunnels, two of which had violated the blue line, meaning that they had crossed into Israel already. Um, this is, you know, an official recognition. Then they have, the, you know, the attempts to cross the border, uh, physical attempts, the discovery of a big Hamas, a Hezbollah cell in the Golan, where they were trying to build the infrastructure, the capability to be able to strike at Israel and to organize terrorist activities. And then we know the missiles that have been fired across uh, the border. So by from the air, from the under the ground and on the ground, we know that they are posing threats. They know that there are tens of thousands of Iranian militia plus thousands of Hezbollah, and they're moving people into Hezbollah, just as Iran is moving Shiites into the area from Damascus towards the Lebanese border. And the, and the discovery of a new missile assembly plant in Syria from of, of Iran, uh, we know that they're very committed to this, that they have invested a lot into trying to position themselves, that is, Iran and its allies, to be in a position to strike at Israel, um, maybe lightning strikes, overnight attack, uh, which is why they want to be as close to the border as possible to to carry it out. Uh, and, and what you just said may explain uh, to those wondering why there's been, in these 52 years of modern history, a slightly different attitude, and I, I wonder if you'd concede that, a slightly different attitude from the Israeli governments, from all the administrations, about the Golan than compared to the so-called West Bank. Because when it comes to security measures uh, to, to to Israeli leaders, the Golan is much, much more important. So while they're ready to tell the world that parts of, the, of Judea and Samaria might be negotiable, uh, to most, not all, which we'll discuss in a minute, to most in Israeli leadership, the Golan would not, not be negotiable, correct? Yes, and there was nobody to negotiate with. Uh, remember, Netanyahu did well, there's have nobody... some indirect negotiations with Assad right. um, in his uh, first term, or earlier term. And, the, uh, and there have been others who have uh, raised the issue and have, I'm sure there were other intermediaries, um, you know, who have gone there to, to talk about it. But the conditions are such that it's, it, it would be impossible to imagine a withdrawal under these circumstances. And remember, in the Golan, for those who, who think that this is uh, unrelated to Israel, the archaeological discoveries there are largely about Jewish communities that existed there in Talmudic times and even earlier. And there are all sorts of, of um, uh, there's all sorts of archaeological evidence to the fact that, the, that Jews lived there and this was a Jewish area of settlement um, from ancient times. So it has some historical significance to to um, to Jews and to Israel. Yeah, we concentrate so much in the center of Israel when it comes to archaeological discoveries. We forget about the north. Exactly, and when they have them, you know, people don't 
get excited, but there have really been some remarkable uh, discoveries. So, the you know, the Golan is a serious issue, and especially now when we see the, the uh, efforts uh, in Syria and the instability that still exists, despite the fact that the Syrian army has taken over increasing area and maybe ISIS has been contained. They're not destroyed, but they've been contained. Uh, and the possibility that the U.S. Will, will remove its presence uh, there are many uh, aspects, and when they talked, when Netanyahu um, uh, spoke about the meetings with Pompeo, as he has in the past, they talked about the joint efforts to roll back Iranian aggression. Well, their presence in Lebanon through Hezbollah directly in Syria, in Iraq, has only increased, and therefore all of these concerns are magnified. Right. Uh, also, in your in the, in the opening part to your answer, you said that uh, you know nobody would rationally believe they should, you know, give it away. But the but the reality is that that there is a percentage of Israeli population, aside from the ones you, you noted in the diaspora, who, for many many times, you know, very often in the last fifty two years, would have been ready to concede the Golan. I mean, I, yes, I acknowledge that. I said that there have been negotiations. There have right. been intermediaries. There have been other efforts to see what, what was possible. And when I met Assad, they, he obviously raised it. Uh, I didn't go with any plans and didn't negotiate and didn't discuss it even. Um, but clearly, you know, he has talked it, and there were, were many other efforts. And to say that no one, when the United Nations did exactly that, you know, for for people who make these these blanket statements, as I heard just in the news this morning, earlier this morning, uh, you know, they should check the facts. Mm, good point. Yeah, um, and also we should remind everybody that at at one point, it, it the perception was that giving away the Golan and some type of deal was really go, uh, uh, turning out to be a reality because that led to the whole Ha'am Im Ha'Golan campaign. Which was really nationwide, and and I think because of the aggressive nature of the campaign, um, one could surmise just how much many average Israeli citizens understood the security threat of, of giving away the Golan. They did, and you don't see it because I don't think people, and there has been no real pressure from America to right. give back uh, the Golan, and as I said, some Europeans, but. The, if given the chance in the United Nations would be asked to vote today, they would certainly vote to return the Golan. Right. Um, the, the reaction you mentioned from around the world, you know what's interesting? Like, Take Erdogan, for instance, in, in, in uh, Turkey. Um, you take him. When, when there was more of a – when there was more of an impression – that he wanted to court the Israelis, that he would have preferred a much better relationship, but that he probably would have reacted a drop differently than they did, right? Yes. I'm sorry? Probably. Yeah. And 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 can't you say the same thing about Putin or Putin's government? Because I don't know if he came out with a statement, but I know some of his representatives did. Uh, couldn't you say the same about him, that that it's really – they're in such a delicate situation. A guy like him, as you've described, does want to maintain a good relationship with Jerusalem, but at the same time has so much of an interest now in Syria. So he's got to release a statement that's, you know, well-balanced. Yes, and also it's a way to strike at the United States that a lot of the comments are people who are, uh, don't like President Trump and will criticize whatever he does. Right. Uh, and and it's a legit, you know, there are legitimate questions you can raise about how this would be implemented and what, what would be done, but not about – I think the intent is clear and um, the, the reaction of Erdogan 
is has been so tainted by virtue of his constant criticism, his attacks, his um, you know now he's in a little hot water. You notice he, he he's been announcing that the Iranians and the Turkish forces. Uh, are engaged in joint operations against the Kurds, and the Iranians have come out now again saying, this is not true, we're not there. We don't know what he's talking about. Uh, but he he's also, um, uh, you know, there's, there's talk now that the U.S. will stop the preparations to deliver the F-35 stealth planes to Turkey because they will not back down on their purchase of the S-400 defense system from uh, Russia and growing tensions in, uh, between Turkey and the United States, as there is between Turkey and many of the countries in, in the region. So the, uh, the, the uh, Turkey's comments, uh, not necessarily a, a measure or barometer, uh, as he has been so critical and sometimes hard to explain some of the positions that he's taken. Uh, and the same thing is true, uh, you know, of others. The Arab League was predictable. Others predictable about what their reaction would be to the statement. And I'm sure there will be. It'll get thrown into the middle of the presidential race and the, um, you know, the criticism that is is launched every day against uh, between the parties and certainly against the president. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard. On listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web, and NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Online is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Um, so now I assume BB doubles down on this every time he has an audience that's English-speaking, that's on this side of the world, where he knows that the entire globe is really paying attention to him. I assume he's going to highlight this and praise President Trump for it, right? He's coming on Sunday. He'll be at the APAC conference speaking Tuesday morning after meeting with the president on Monday and then again on Tuesday evening. Um, you can be sure that this will be a major theme of, of his remarks and um, would have been included in his remarks, but I'm sure it will be much uh, a much more prominent part of what he has to say. All right. And uh, March surprise, I know that sounds cynical, but... It really could be. It could. It could it, I mean, we have to. We have to sit and observe that this could, if in fact all this campaigning that you just described has an effect on the people in Israel because they love Trump so much and they, you know, and they're deciding who to vote for at this point. Then this really could be a a, a big factor in it. I'm not sure that it's that it will change. The people's views are pretty well entrenched in Israel. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a movement back and forth between right and left, but amongst a small percentage, a relatively small percentage. So, uh, and I think that this is an issue in which most Israelis agree. And if you notice that Gantz and others have come out in support of it. Right. So it, it, I don't know that it becomes that partisan an issue. Obviously, it, it underscores the close relationship with the United States between the two people, the two men, but more importantly, which is important to uh, Israelis and and it enhances his stature. I think is is the key factor here more than the um, you know ultimate implications of the decision of right. the state. Close out this topic for me. Is, is it a Purim miracle? Is it a is it is it a time to celebrate? Is it you know, what do you, what do you call this this um, declaration by President Trump via Twitter yesterday? Surprising. But I think the um, cause for celebration. 
or not? I think no. Obviously, it's a positive statement. It's a, it's a statement about it, that they understand the security needs on the uh, at the Golan, and the, the need to to make this statement because there are those who who were pushing against it, and given the changes that are taking place in Syria. And this is, again, it's not happening in a vacuum, and it's not the political vacuum. It's the situation on the ground when we see Iran's, you know, growing presence, and, uh, you know, they criticize the EU mechanism for funding, but at the same time, they're announcing that, that the head of their nuclear program, Saleh, announced that they have the capacity to enrich, and they're building new facilities, Boucher two, Boucher three. that they are, um, that Khomeini had given the order when they signed the deal that he didn't trust the West, and therefore don't destroy stuff. So he said that we, you know, kept intact a lot of it, and the the infrastructure, and we see that their nuclear program uh, continues. We want to see the sanctions uh, re-upped against uh, those countries that were given exemptions, and that will be a major issue, I think, for Netanyahu's discussions here, by the way, and I'm sure we're in the discussions with Secretary Pompeo, who would not be committal uh, right. on that issue, and that's very important. And, and, and you can really get the significance when you look at the debate over funding of uh, reconstruction in Syria, which is estimated to cost $250 billion. And the Russians are saying, well, let the United States and the West pay. And uh, uh, others are also trying to shift the onus onto the U.S. And the U.S. is saying, we're not paying for this. But the countries involved, Turkey, Iran, you know, Russia, who have big stakes and who have, you know, are playing dominant roles, uh, should be involved. Maybe Arab countries should be involved in uh, funding it. And nobody wants to take on this responsibility. So you, you're going to leave a chaotic situation that um, – will only get worse in the future. Yeah. Uh, the week began with the murder of uh, IDF soldier Sergeant Gal Kedan, with the murder of Rabbi Achiad Ettinger. Uh, Alexander Dvorsky was injured in critical condition from that attack. Uh, I think it minimizes the, um, uh, the, the whole situation when people try to surmise that this is an attack that happened to alter how people in Israel might vote uh, in a couple of weeks, and I think we need to remember that these things are still happening on a regular basis, and that uh, uh, you know, again, the enemy, uh, no matter what, whether there's an election or not an election, is re- is ready to act and kill Jews, you know, on a wanton basis. Absolutely, it's unrelated to the to the election. It's you know, there's a lot of frustrations, and everybody can come up with excuses about you know what the people's moods but but look what's happening in the Golan in the Gaza today we've discussed the situation on the Golan but Gaza got little attention when you have a virtual revolution going on where the demonstrations were not against Israel but against Hamas and against the rule and and I think people are getting fed up with the demonstrations being used as a way to deflect attention from the uh, economic situation from the corruption from the failure of the Hamas regime. Some of it is related also to the breakdown between Fatah and Hamas and the succession and many questions that are going on with regard to them and the refusal to to give money and as, as the PA has refused to take the transfers of, of money because Israel was deducting you know, a small portion of it for the amount that they were giving and are giving to terrorists and their families and rewarding those who murder uh, Jews. So the situation in the Golan, in the Gaza, 
it is, has deteriorated a lot. I'm sure there'll be a big demonstration today because it's the one-year anniversary of the weekly demonstrations. But more importantly, the uh, the internal strife that it, that is going on, and the UN representative, in fact, condemned Hamas for the treatment of the of the people. A thousand have been arrested, including journalists. Again, you don't see UN resolutions and condemnations uh, coming the way it would be if uh, if Israel could be anyway implicated. But so far, uh, obviously, and, and shouldn't be. But that doesn't. Uh, make a difference when it comes to uh, the way they treat it. So, uh, you know, there are the the concern about what's going on in Gaza and the failure to to acknowledge and understand this dynamic where you have the people revolting against the government and economic conditions and others. And And, many of the Gazans interviewed say they want to go to work in Israel. And at the same time, still having these weekly protests against Israel. Yes, because they're organized by Hamas. They're forced to, people are forced, they're rounded up to go. The people are paid to go. Right, I'm just curious which is larger, frankly. I'm, I'm curious which is the more active movement, if there's a way to compare the two. Well, one is certainly spontaneous and the other is not. And spontaneous is the uh, right. demonstrations. And the people see that after being promised that, you know, you do these demonstrations, that things will get better, we'll be able to force Israel to move, we'll be able to do other things. And they see things only get worse, not better, and that the the corrupt force is not Israel. It's, it's their own government that's in, imposing all these horrific conditions on them. Yeah, it's an unbelievable dynamic that's going on. And we re- I, don't, I don't remember ever seeing anything like this, certainly not at this level. Um, it, when it this comes- is serious, and the, the brutality with which they are acting against uh, people, including some of the U.N. observer forces in, um, what do they call the Independent Commission for Human Rights staff, uh, and, uh, and raiding people's homes and stuff that, that they consider potential opposition. Great concern. Can Israel do anything as they watch this, or they have no choice but to just basically sit by and uh, like Israel's this? not on the ground in in Gaza, despite all the accusations. Yeah, but I'm that wondering. An uh, but, but, I'm, power. but I'm wondering if politically, like, there's something I'm not thinking of that they could do or act on that would. You well, know, part of the problem is that that the Fatah is so disunited. They've appointed this new uh, prime minister, Shaita uh, or Shayeta, and. Um, you know, he's trying to feel his way, whether he wants to be another Fayyad, if those who remember that era, mm-hmm. and uh, whether he's he's a potential successor to to Abbas. Um, but he will run into the same frustrations, that, that they're not free to make any moves, and that, that uh, Abu Mazen or Abbas is not ready to do anything, and if anything, he just exacerbates the problems uh, more and more, and, and they don't have the ability to, to stop this. And in fact, there are those who argue that Fatah wants to see these this internal disruption because they hope that they will be called in, and their condition is that they take over the government and that Hamas withdraws, and at some point Hamas may well do it because the collapse of the of the regime would be devastating internally. And I know that it's not totally related, obviously, because we're not talking about our Arab Israelis uh, when we talk about these demonstrations. But there are articles I've read this week about the Arab Israeli vote. What what normally happens? Normally, an Arab Israeli who's a citizen of Israel will boycott the Israeli election. Is that what normally happens? And now they're being encouraged to do the opposite and to put someone in office who might be to the advantage of that community? Essentially, there have been a lot of pressure and, in fact, even actions against people, Arabs, Israeli Arabs who went to vote. 
uh, and there were calls for boycotts of their votes in the past. But remember, they have a significant delegation sitting in the Knesset yeah. and um, maybe playing a decisive role in in the next government, in the formation of the government. They don't join the government, but they are part of the um, you know the 61 votes if they join a bloc. Uh, so most of the parties say they won't form a government based on the uh, Arab vote. Uh, the Arab parties, because they take very extreme positions, as you know, and some don't recognize the state, even though they sit in the Knesset and draw a salary but from is the, it. But is the conjecture that there'll be a larger turnout among the Arab Israelis, or it's likely it's too early to tell? Yeah. No, and, 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 and I guess if you're a betting man, you'd probably say it's likely going to be very close to what it normally is, right? I mean, at this point, that's probably what you'd say. Yeah. Um, this article that I saw about the. Uh, uh, the Ron Campius article on uh, on APAC from the Jerusalem Post. You got to go through this mini here a second. He 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 makes I think some great points, and that is that the APAC conference. And I know that you might be limited to what you're what you're able to say to us publicly about this, which I totally understand. But whatever you could tell us. So number one, he says there are four things to watch at APAC. So number one is the Trump factor, which again is you know <laughs> we we know that that most most I hope I'm right in saying it like this. Most APAC officials would welcome the policies of a president of the United States that are similar to the policies of the current president. The problem is, though, they've been said by the current president. In other words, there's a lot of people who are so um, – uh, who, who who have such anathema toward the, the current president that it, it, it creates a problem. Would you say that's a good evaluation of the, you know, the crowd at the APAC conference when it comes to uh, President Trump? Well, the president's not going to be there, but Vice President – Pence and Secretary of State Pompeo and Nikki Haley, many others will be there, as there will be the leaders of the Democratic Party. And this canard about that is being spread that our, that the Democratic presidential candidates are boycotting the convention, it's not true that the, they did not invite them because you, you got, what, 15, 16 people. Um, so the decision was not to invite presidential candidates on either side, but only the people who are in office, and therefore Pelosi and Schumer and others will be will be speaking. Uh, Israel has to remain a bipartisan issue. You're right that there are people, as soon as you mentioned Trump, they go, go apoplectic. Right. There is a strong opposition. There are legitimate grounds for people to have differences of view. Although it will be expressed uh, properly. Uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, the the um, how they will react, I think it's really on the substance. It's not on the politics. They will support and react positively right. to you know, messages that support the U.S. Israel special relationship, U.S. security, the issues on which uh, there is basic agreement. Uh, second, he mentions the Omar factor. It is possible to go through the whole convention without mentioning her or that whole point of view, right? It's possible. Hopefully. And, uh, oh, you think that's... Talking about you, you do her think... And building you do... her up further. We should be making sure that, uh, you know, the falsity of her messages is, is made clear, that the um, propagandistic nature of her declarations... And there is more to to be said, and I think that uh, the fact that these people, that she and others, make the front page of magazines and stuff when they've accomplished nothing except to become, you know, uh, a darling of, of extremists and and to be uh, extolled and, and campaigning when in fact they know nothing about the issues and have demonstrated that repeatedly. And the the um, what it represents in the future is something that is, of course, of concern. And most Democrats take it of great concern because they know that this could harm the party. I am glad I asked you because I was curious if it's a good idea or a bad idea to bring her up publicly. Uh, next is the APAC factor, which, you know, is the, is the usual two-state solution versus 
uh, other solutions, which I, I, I get continues to be a debate. And the fourth is the Israel factor. I mean, is it possible that because of the whole you know right wing alliance that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has now formed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is it possible that he'll get a really questionable welcome at the at the conference? Or you think that most people will react the way one should when the Prime Minister shows up? I, look, it's hard to predict whether you, you only need a few people in an auditorium of that, especially in a crowd of that size, That's with eighteen thousand people coming, uh, and um, it doesn't take many people to disrupt it right. and to to you know cause a, a, you know to boo and to cause some negative reaction. Overall, it will be received politely, uh, as well. I hope all of the speakers and that people not. Uh, react just emotionally, but think about what they what they say or do. They can sit on their hands if they feel that that's appropriate. But I don't think there should be a, a negative reaction. I think the positions that the people hold should be respected, even if they have differences with the individuals, and that they will um, behave accordingly. I anticipate that that will be the case, and usually it gets a thunderous uh, response from the vast majority from of the people who will be there. And those, uh, frankly, who object to views of, of his or positions, they shouldn't come. They should just stay away from that session. And the the um, there will be demonstrations outside. We already see some of the things that are being said and written, uh, some of the mocking stuff online, which is really uh, offensive often. And you know that Bennett dropped out now, so right. Gantz will be there, and they give an opportunity to many different views to be heard. Uh, quite a few people coming from Israel to, to speak. I think a lot of people just don't want to see it turn into a campaign rally one way or the other, you know? That's right. They want. To, I think they want to focus on issues. They want some respite from the you know, political circus for for us here and from Israel, though most Americans are fairly disengaged. But the in terms of the heavy politics of of domestically and of the United States, that this should be a place where people can put aside their labels and come together in the common causes that unite us. By the way, and here's a great way to wrap up. Um, on Tuesday, we broadcasted live from the Kushner schools. Seventy-seven students, the largest student delegation of any school in the United States of America to APAC. Pretty cool, huh? Well, and I think that the presence of more and more people, young people, number one, and number two, um, you see the the presence of the uh, traditional communities where many keep out, and right. you see the, um, the schools that have come and synagogues that have organized to come. It's, you know, it's a very important once-a-year gathering where people – can just come and say, look, we're committed to Israel, we're committed to the U.S.-Israel relationship. This is not uh, a political gathering, and we're not here to endorse uh, candidates. I, I think it's really, and people tell me all the time how they go away reinforced and how inspired they are, and and um, that, that it makes a difference and carries them through the year. And whether you have differences with particular positions of APAC is it's irrelevant. This is a year when we have to show the support, united support, more than ever as they come under criticism because they are a strong uh, position. We don't see other communities who have advocacy groups, it's, and it's not a PAC, and it doesn't give money to political candidates um, th- that operate in Washington, these other groups, and do not come under the same kind of um, uh, scrutiny and criticism and distortions about the role that APAC plays. All right, Malcolm, I thank you. On this Shushan Purim morning, it, you, one cannot ignore what the President of the United States has done when it comes to policy uh, vis-a-vis Israel. 
Absolutely. And when one steps back, because you know when you're when when you're sitting within the story, it's sometimes hard to see it. When one steps back and and really looks from that vantage point at what he's done, it's simply remarkable, and it's got to be acknowledged. Uh, I thank you, and a happy Shushan Purim to you. And have a good Shabbos. And a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll be Pesach in Puerto Vallarta. Go to PesachInVallarta.com, PesachInVallarta.com, or call 786-290-5919, 786-290-5919. And you can pepper him with questions, just not during the Seder, please. Uh, but you can pepper him with questions during Pesach. Keep him on his toes about all the different things going on in this insane world of ours. Excuse me, I meant crazy world of ours. Um, <laughs> that's that's one of the advantages of joining the Homeline family for Pesach. You get to, to ask away, and knowing him, he will answer everything for you.